0: related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the
1: Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: David Clayton is an internationally known artist, teacher, author, composer, and broadcaster. He's provost of Pontifex University, a canonically approved Catholic university faithful to the magisterium, which offers online programs, including a Master of Arts, Master of Sacred Arts, and doctorate in theology. His blog and podcast can be found at TheWayOfBeauty.org. Trained in both the sacred art tradition of Byzantine iconography, and as a portrait painter in the style of Western classical naturalism, he has had many prominent commissions in both the UK and the US. Professor Clayton has published four books as we displayed there, we'll include a link in the further study uh, email after this talk. And the latest was The Vision for You, How to Discover the Life You Were Made For, published in 2018, which is the subject of tonight's presentation. Professor Clayton, the show is all yours.
3: Thank you very much. Um, Well, it's a great pleasure to be here again. Thank you for that uh, very generous introduction. And uh, I hope you'll follow the advice and buy all my books in triplicate. Um, (laughs) You'll argue with that. So what I'm going to talk to to you about today is the subject of that book, The Vision for You, um, How to Discover the Life You Were Made For. And actually, I produced a companion, which is now available, which is just a distillation of the spiritual exercises. Um, so you'll find it on Amazon, for example, as the described as the, the workshop manual. Um, but it's just a it's it really distills everything down and doesn't include the story that I'm about to tell you now. It's just the the how-to. But the essence of this is that. Uh, When I was um, in my mid-twenties, I was 26, and I was in London, and I was an atheist, and I was miserable, and I was in a position where I was uh, reconsidering my direction in life. I really didn't know what to do. I not only was sort of laboring under the illusion that all my circumstances were to my liking, I would be happy. I thought, you know, if I could arrange everything, And I was unhappy because nothing was perfectly to my liking. But more than that, I was getting to the point where I really wasn't sure what was uh, going to make me happy. I didn't know really what I was striving for. And I had been brought up a Christian, so I had some sense of the Christian faith, but had rejected it uh, as soon as I was able, as soon as I was given a choice. Then, by chance, through a, a mutual friend, I met... A guy. He, he died ten years later, actually, so he's no longer alive. But his name was David Bertwistle. He was in his sixties at that time, so much older than me. And he, we just, he came to a uh, a cafe where I was meeting this friend um, and engaged me in conversation. And uh, through the course of this conversation, and I talk a little bit about how he managed to get my interest. He persuaded me that if I did a series of um, exercises, that there was a chance that I could become an artist. One of my frustrations was that I wanted to paint and I just didn't know how to do it. It seemed like an impossible task. I thought at 26, my life was over. Uh, the way I just describe it, I thought I'd made all the important choices. I'd been to university. That sets your career for life, is what I thought. And the way I put it was that I was just waiting for retirement and then for death. And so you could just say I was waiting for death. And this is how I felt at age 26. And he made me believe that there was another way out. And what I'm doing, what I do in the book is I describe the story of um, meeting him because uh, not only is what he told me I think very interesting, and I, I give you that as well these this series of exercises which turned out to be spiritual exercises. he uh presented this so that uh I would be interested in other words, he was a a great evangelist, so he uh, very quickly perceived that I was an atheist, hostile to religion and if he'd come and said, this will show you the, the way to Christ, or this will show you that this is, these, this is a series of Christian exercises or something like that, I would not have done them. So he he, de- he never mentioned those uh, that fact to me at all. He just told me um, he realised what my need was, and deep down it was happiness, and he related it to me by saying that I could discover what my calling was what I was meant to be. And the language I would use to describe that now is that I'd say that he gave me my personal vocation. So as we just heard Father Hezekiah describing, we are made by God to seek him. And uh, he does everything possible to make himself available to us. We really have to push him away as much. That's the first action, really. He's there with that offering us that hand of help the whole time, and although I didn't realize it, that's what I'd been doing as an atheist, I've been consistently pushing him away. but then the question is, how do I find God? What do I do? How do I even begin that path? and uh David knew that I was in, as an unhappy person, I was in search of God. he couldn't tell me that God is what I needed, but what he did was um, ask me a a question, and I will come to this at the end of the three talks. So today I'm going to give you a description of my story and give you a takeaway of the the very beginnings of a sort of daily routine of prayer and meditation. Next week I'm going to give you a little more detail about the the reflection and the, the exercises, and then in the final week I'm going to go through the process of discernment which came at the end because in order to find, uh, to listen to God and to discern what I was meant to do, I had to establish that relationship with God. And David knew that. But I I imagine you're curious. So that the discernment process is listed in the handout as spiritual exercise four. And you'll just see the first question there. And David threw this in to me early on. Um, he said to me, if you inherited so much money that uh, you... He said a million pounds, but you've got to remember this is 30 years ago. Uh, you inherited so much money that you never had to work again for the money. What would you choose to do? I said, I, I would like to paint. And he said, that's what and that's what you should do. And the, the idea here is that um, as long as what we want to do isn't intrinsically evil or bad, That desire comes from God. We are made by God to seek him. And we are made by him to have some level, an understanding of how we seek him, the path we're, we're due to take. And so that is what made me believe that I could be an artist. And he said, right, I'll show you what you can do. And he then explained to me that he was going to give me a series of actions, and we wouldn't actually get to the... The chasing of the art career, if you like, um, until I'd done uh, gone through this process, which um, I'm about to describe to you. Uh, I was a little bit suspicious, so he uh, presented this as what I now understand was a a sort of Pascal's wager. Um, If you, I don't know if you're aware of Pascal's wager. Pascal said, um, "You might as you know, you might as well believe in God because." If God doesn't exist, you haven't lost anything and you've got a better life. If God does, then you get everything that's promised through faith in God. I remember hearing that years and years ago. In fact, I remember at high school, my headmaster telling us this. I'm thinking, well, that's all very well. You can't just choose to believe in God. Uh, David didn't mention Pascal. Uh, What he did, he said, all you have to do is try these actions and you just have to have sufficient willingness or faith to do the actions. You don't have to believe in anything beyond that. I'm not asking you to accept any creed. Uh, you just have to be willing to believe uh, that there's, there's something which can help you and do these actions consistent with the idea of God. So, and I'll give you this, these first actions by the end of today, and you've got them on the handout anyway, it's the, the daily routine. But he said, if you can do those, then that's all you need. You just take the actions as though God exists and see what happens. And the way he sold it to me, he said, you can try this for 30 days, do it every day. And if you don't like it, we'll return your misery with interest, he said. And uh, I thought, well, I could at least try that. Something else that convinced me that he had something to offer was that, uh, one, I can't Imitate him, but he was—he would ask me about myself, and there was—he would—he showed in the the way he responded when I was describing my situation. He would gradually coax out of me the details of my unhappy life, Um, and he had a knack for doing this. And he would do this by just giving me details about his own life, and effectively uh, mirroring what I was saying with things from his past. And then he would say, "Well, I used to be like that, but it's changed." So you could say in the modern parlance, you know, he identified with me, although he would never use a word like that. I also saw the effect that he had on my friend, my mutual friend. He'd taken my friend through these exercises, and and in time, I met several others that he'd helped. And all of them seemed to have this happiness, this peace about them, um, a sense of a sort of underlying Confidence, I think, and they seemed at ease with themselves i was I had I had been struck by the change in in my friend, he definitely changed um, when David died um, ten years later i i went we went I went to his funeral obviously this was in West London, something like apart from the family, six hundred people came to this funeral in London, all of whom had been shown this process by him or Knew him, been shown it by others who'd uh, done it, and you may ask where he got it from. Um, I don't know fully. He he talked of somebody who'd shown him, but what he was giving me really was was, I now realise ancient Christian wisdom, similar in some ways to the Ignatian exercises. There was a lot of his personal judgment in this. I had no idea, but he was a very strong believing Catholic. Uh, He didn't, I didn't find out for three years. I I converted after five years of having begun this journey with him. And, uh, but it wasn't until uh, I was ready to start taking instruction that he told me that he was Catholic. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. So what is the, the personal vocation? I think we'll just talk about that. It's that desire for happiness, and it's what God made us to do to to find him in this life. Um, So we tend to think of vocation, it tends to be used to mean state in life, marriage, uh, whether you become priest or religious, something like that. Um, And it can mean that, but I'm using it in the sense of really every aspect of our life can be part of this vision that God has for us, Um, every aspect. Um, David was luring me in, if you like, with a promise of a a career. But it's not even just about career. It's about a mission in life. And um, I want to just tell you a story in connection with this. Um, I began uh, through this process following an artistic career. And I would tell people, even after David died, about what he had uh, passed on to me. Um, And for a long time... I was doing what he'd suggested, but I was, I was taking classes. I was learning a lot, but I certainly wasn't earning any money to it. And should we say I was a worry to my parents, you know, I was making sacrifices, not irrational or extreme ones, but, uh, nevertheless, you know, my career, my conventional career was beginning to falter as I focused on art and there was a logic to it. Um, And of course, now I think it's all worthwhile, but for a while, I really didn't know whether it was going to. As I followed this, I'd go to people who seemed to be experts in the religious life and just ask their advice and tell them what I was doing. And one of those people, many years later, actually, was a a priest called Father Timothy Verdon, who is a, um, I don't don't know if he's still around, actually, this would be 15 years ago I met him. And he was uh, an American who'd been a, an art history professor at Yale and, had a, and used to take people around Florence and in Italy uh, and describe uh, Renaissance art to, I think, visiting Americans. He would bring them over from Yale and show them round. And in the course of doing this, he, if he didn't have a conversion, uh, I don't know whether, how, where he was coming from precisely spiritually, but the, the end of it was that he became a priest, um, and he went, was on the, as, as part of the community of priests at the Duomo in Florence. And um, he was part of the Italian church, so he, had, he was a late vocation. And um, I was studying art at the time, um, studying the academic method. So part of what David had promised me was beginning to come true. And all all the Americans and Brits in Florence wanted to meet this guy because they thought that he might be able to give them a hand up in their careers. Uh, he was very good at sort of not not being available. I think so many people wanted to talk to him. Uh, he didn't, on the whole. Uh, certainly not people who were just so randomly knocking. But uh, through a a number of or through a coincidence, I met a bishop who said, "Oh, you should uh, mention my name." and Father Timothy Verdon will probably have to see you. (laughs) So he did. He gave me an appointment. I I could tell he wasn't really that pleased, but he knew he had to. He he was gracious, but he wasn't sure really what I was going to ask. And I wanted to ask, I had ideas by this stage of how to create an art school. And I decided that I wanted to found an art school, and I was developing a theory about this. And so I just talked to him about this idea. I just said this is my idea. I just want to hear whether you think this is a good idea or not. And so when I got in there, I knew exactly what I was going to say. I was really fired up and I just described it. So there was no hesitation. I just went for it. Uh, this is what I want to do. This is what I think could work. And he listened to me. I think he made one or two minor but very helpful suggestions, but as he was listening to me, I could see he was sort of warming up to what I was saying and so I was thinking, great—he's he, he's in a position to introduce me to all sorts of people. I could—I could really, you know—I could open the school if he gives me the right introduction. And he said to me, "I think—I think you're on the right lines, and furthermore, I think that what you're describing is your personal vocation." And I don't know what he'd seen, but it was something about the the way I spoke. I imagine it was the conviction or the the the, the passion with which I did. I don't know. Um, But he saw something or heard something uh, in me that made him say this to me. This is your vocation. And he said, you really should follow this. And he said, I'm not going to help you. (laughs) I thought, oh, great, thanks. Why are you bothering to tell me this? He said, because I think really you need to go to the US. And I'm not sure I'm in a position to do so. I've got many other things to do. But I don't think it matters. I think if you follow this, God will make happen what's supposed to happen. And then he said something very interesting. He said, and I can't even promise you that you're going to be successful in opening this art school. I'm telling you that I think you should certainly strive for it. Keep that vision in mind and let that be your homing signal um, as far as it goes until you get there. And then you look for the next one. But you may never get there, but keep following it. And he said, and the test of this vocation is that you will be fulfilled. You'll feel fulfilled and happy as you strive for this. So the journey itself will be fulfilling and happy and joyful. And he said, and whether you're aware of it or not, in the course of doing this, you will attract others to the faith. And that is your vocation. It is to do what's necessary to have a a happy and fulfilling life as ordained, if that's the right way, with a little o, by God, and ultimately to to be with him in heaven. But on that path, um, if we do that, we will draw others to God, and it will be our lives, us, who will draw people in. This is the picture, of course, of the new evangelization. We we are transformed by the life in Christ, uh, and it is the people that we become, through God's grace, that draw others to it. We might have gifts for preaching or for communicating or other things which connect with people in other ways. But as much as that, it will be the way we do it and how we are. And he said, "You will meet people, and they may never tell you that this is that they are. You have had an effect on them, but you will. And uh, unless you do this, you won't be happy." He said, because I think I really think that, that you should strive for this, and this is what you're called to do. Um, And so I thought this was interesting, and it tied in very much with what David had said right at the start, that the assumption here is that when we find our personal vocation, that the calling we have is a happy Christian life, and that it is possible to be happy, provided we're doing what God asks us to do, regardless of the circumstances. I wasn't sure I believed that. I was so tied to circumstances. I was doing precisely what Father Hezekiah has told us we shouldn't. Certainly, as an atheist, I had all sorts of things before God as the end goal. And even as a Christian, when I'm miserable, it's always a, a deep down, there's something that I'm putting above God, that's uh, that some way. And the analysis that David gave me, as a part of these exercises, are actually ways of recognizing this and moving back to God in a very deep, and fulfilling way. So I, I just want to tell you um, another little story, which I think will be a little more dry, the sort of essence of the, the programme itself. Uh, and and I'm just going to tell you a story about how this happened. What David said to me is that once we, I started, I was in a position, he felt I was able to start actively pursuing the art career, which is a wasn't for several months after I'd met him. As I said, I had to go through the, the rest of the process. Um, he said, uh, just decide what you want to do in your wildest dreams. Forget the money. This is not what job do you want to do. It's what would you like to do? And uh, first of all, he told me this is, this is not the height of what you can do. This is a low bar. He said, the only reason that you won't end up doing this is either you, you, you go to God first you die and, we hope, go to heaven. Or else, along the way, you will find something which actually is, at this point, beyond your imagination. And you realize that you're enjoying even more than what you, what was your first homing signal. And in a way, that's what's happened with me. I, 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 I am an artist, and I paint, and I've had commissions. But doing what I do um, is as much what I want to be doing as anything else. Uh, I realized that my calling was as much about helping others to become artists as to be an artist myself. And so that's what I strive to do. And I didn't realize that when I began. What David said to me was that in, <laughs> if I aimed for this, he said, all you do is take the first step. Uh, don't plan your whole route. He said, if you take a first step that's taking you closer to where you're meant to be, then um, you worry about the second step after you've done the first. And he said, if you want to be an artist, it might be a, an evening class at the local art school. Uh, and I thought, gosh, how many of those do I have to do? We'll get into that in a second. Or it might be you just put yourself amongst people who are doing what you do. Get a job as a janitor in an art school, is what he suggested. And then you make a lateral jump. He said, But as long as it's moving you one step closer, you don't burn your bridges, you don't give up your job, your main job. Uh, you still have to fulfill the responsibilities of life, even if it's just a little tiny bit. If you dig for water and pray for rain, uh, God will give you the, the, uh, the water of life, so to speak. And really that's, that's how it happened. And I just want to uh, give you one story um, as to the sort of things that started to happen to me. Um, it wasn't happening every day, and when I tell you these stories, remember, this is—I'm just—this has been a 30-year journey. So I'm compressing all of these uh, the stories I'm going to tell you in these next three sessions into three hours or something. So it sounds like it's happening all the time. I was uh, trying to find a job that gave me time to paint, a part-time job that had flexibility. And I used to play tennis um, with a guy who was uh, chief sub-editor at the Sunday Times. And he just said, look, why don't you come and try out? I I, I don't know why he asked me. I I hadn't written an essay since I was 16, uh, from the age of 16 onwards. So I barely knew how to punctuate. He said, come and try out and be a sub-editor. You'd be a proofreader and see how you go. And for some reason, they gave me the job. I was really learning on the job. And that's how I eventually became a writer by the way I was the skills I learned there um, having never had any idea I could do it but in the process of doing this I, I was doing a shift at the Sunday at the Times this, you know this is the Times of London so I got a job at the, at the premier paper in Britain without having any experience I still don't quite know how it happened um, but I was doing a shift for the Saturday magazine which is a glossy magazine. And they had a regular column called Somebody's Got to Do It. And it was, it was a sidebar with a little photograph of the person. Uh, it was about people who did unusual jobs. And they, they were, they'd just put, uh, put to bed the, the previous week. And it was a lady who did um, spiritual healing through colonic irrigation, believe it or not. And so they said, "We need somebody. We need somebody to follow that, and we haven't got anybody for next week." And they and he turned to me and said, what, "What do you do, David?" And I said, "Well, I'm, I'm I'm an icon painter." I, I said. He said, "Okay, that'll do." And he gave my he said, "Give this woman a ring," and so I phoned the journalist. And the thing you realise when you work in newspapers, they, the the articles that start, "Everybody's talking about the new this, that, or the other," means. The three or four people in the office at the newspaper are talking about it, and they, uh, they don't know what else to, to put in the article. So anyway, I was interviewed as the icon painter and appeared in The Times magazine. Uh, the following week, The Guardian, which is, again is another national paper, which you might have heard of in Britain, phoned me up and said, we've seen the article about you in The Times. And we'd like to have you, a feature of you on the front cover of our weekly education supplement. So this time they sent a photographer around and they took a photograph of me brush in hand, painting an icon. Remember, I hadn't saw the painting at this stage. Um, And I appeared on the front page of The Guardian. And that actually gave me some authority when I spoke to people later. (laughs) Uh, But one way that that this uh, helped me was that years later, I was applying for a green card in the US, um, and, the, and it was actually just a work visa. And the lawyer said, do you know I th- I think you could get a green card here as an artist. Um, he seemed to have the background. And so uh, he said, uh, we need to make a case that you're internationally known. So by this stage, I'd had, I'd sold one painting to friends in Maryland. So that, that gave me some sort of international reach. And he said, have you ever appeared in any sort of national or international papers? I said, well, actually, I was in the, the Times and the Guardian. He said, okay, that'll do. And so um, that was used as the basis for my, for my green card. And all of this just happened. I, I couldn't have engineered this at all. And this is exactly how David described it, the process. He said, if this is meant to be, doors will open in front of you. Pray, pray for rain and dig for water. He said, "You do your little bit, and God is not going to ask you to do more than you're you're capable of doing, and then God will do the rest." Um, and that is that is what's happened, and that has been the pattern. And in the final, in the third of these talks, I'm going to give you more stories like that, um, just to show you how uh, there's just enough of those. To make me believe that there is God, at, God is at work in these. In this, it's not just my efforts. So anyway, the the beginning of this. I'm now going to go to because I want to try and finish at about in about ten minutes so that people have questions. I'm uh, imagining some people will, but I'm going to uh, just give you a, a takeaway for the week. And this is the first thing that uh, David gave me. If I can find the sheet, it's the The list of daily suggestions. Here we go. The daily routine. Thank goodness. I've got my sheaf of papers here. Spiritual exercise number one. He actually started me with this. And I realized now that he was testing my resolve. He wanted to, all he was interested in was I did these things. And so he, he said, do you believe in God? I said, no. He said, are you willing to believe? I said, well, I suppose so. He said, well, all you have to do is act as though God exists and take these actions and see what happens. And these are the things he told me to do for 30 days. Um, so in the morning, he said, on your knees, and he stressed this, take the action, engage body and soul, the whole person, um, in an action of humility, um, and say something like, please, God, take care of me today so that I can be of service to you and my fellows. So we ask things we address God. We establish the relationship with God. Uh, we do ask things for ourselves, but as they may help us in our usefulness to others. Um, Matt is the, actually the hierarchy of loves, I believe, according to Thomas Aquinas, is we love God first, ourselves next, actually, which was surprising to me, and then our neighbor. And the answer is that we must um, consider um, ourselves. We must accept God's love in order to be able to love our neighbor. And this is working, the, the very wording of this prayer, the fact that I'm, ta- I'm, doing some, I'm taking an action of humility as an act of adoration, whether I like it or not. And he said, don't pray in the shower. Don't do this as you're walking the dog. I, you, you need to be sure this is what you're doing. Even if you think it's rubbish and the words are just flying out the window, just do it. Uh, I think the first time I did it, I felt so strange I waited till my flatmate in London had gone to work. I went to the bathroom, locked the door in case he came back in while I was doing this. And the the window for the bathroom was that bobbly glass, which you can't make anything out through. Even then, I closed the curtains. And even that, and what the view, if I had been able to see, was a, a brick wall. But I was so self conscious about actually being seen. And I remember I got on my knees, I put my hands together, and I said, uh, please, God, take care of me today so that I can be service to you and my others, and then sprang up like I was on a spring. I, I, it's so, I felt so strange. And I went through the day and I did these things. And at the end of the day that I'm about to describe to you, I, he said, say thank you. Uh, it's good manners to say thank you. Um, thank you, God, for looking after me. Um, and he said, whether you feel grateful or not, act as though you are, and in time, Gratitude will come. So that's prayer. And then uh, he gave me some tools to deal with unhappiness in the course of the day. If you're angry or annoyed at somebody, he said, Pray for the person. I won't tell you to say the word he used. There's two guys talking together. He said, Through gritted teeth, if necessary, just say, Please give this person everything I would wish for myself. And just repeat it until you feel better. Uh, The next day, I was I had two levels of consciousness. I was at work, uh, one level, I was uh, doing my work, but the other, I was praying for my boss, so I, I just could, I was unable to take directions. She wasn't a bad boss, but it's no surprise I had problems with her because I was defiant by nature, didn't like being told what to do. I realized I had to change. so David said, he, said, he told me, "You go to work." to do what your boss tells you and to be of service to your fellow workers. Uh, So whether you like it or not, do what your boss tells you. And if you don't like it, just pray for her. So that's what I did. I I spent the whole nine to five praying for her, and she still doesn't know to this day. I remember I got to... By the way, David told me that if I turn up to work on time, do my best to do what I'm told, and then go home again, uh, that will put me ahead of 90% of everyone else who's at work <laughs> because that's what you're supposed to do. He said, just trying to do that will improve your career, no end. And especially if you're asking for God for help. So the other one is if I'm fearful or anxious, um, say this prayer, he called the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And he said uh, again, repeat it a lot, if if you're really overtaken by uh, something that's, you know, a strong attack of anxiety, excuse yourself and go to the bathroom. Every building has a prayer room and it's called the bathroom. Go there and get on your knees. And five minutes of saying this prayer is a lot of prayer. But he said, trust me, you're not so important that anybody's going to miss you for five minutes. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. Uh, So that was the daily routine. B, uh, I've got two A's there, and the the final one is something that I wasn't able to do until I'd been through the whole whole process. I added that in later. Uh, But at this initial stage, then he said, I want you to do some, I called it reflection, but this is actually meditation in the Western tradition. I didn't realize he was giving me this. Meditation in the Western tradition is not eliminating thought as Uh, It can be in the Eastern tradition. We tend to think of that um, or stilling the mind. It's actually thinking. To meditate just means to think, and it's directing our thoughts towards godly things. So he said, write a gratitude list. Uh, I said, what's one of those? He said, well, it's just a a list of things you're grateful for. I said, well, there's a problem here. I'm not grateful. I haven't got anything to be grateful for. He said, okay, then let's start at the beginning. He said, are you alive and he wanted me to say, to affirm that it was true. I said, yes, OK, I'm alive. Have you had enough to eat? Have you had a meal today? Yes. I see you're wearing clothes. And he sort of sort of looked at me rather derisively, he said, over fashion. So uh, bed, food, have uh, you got a bed to sleep in tonight? Have you got a roof over your head, clothes to wear, food to eat, and you're alive? And he said, OK, let's just stop there. Whether you are aware of it or not, God gave you the essentials for life today. And there is, and and I've written this down, food, bed, roof, clothes, alive. And so there in front of you in black and white is written proof that your prayers have been answered. And furthermore, God answered them and was providing for you even before you acknowledged Him, Because I'm guessing that most days up until now, you've had those essentials. That is the measure of God's generosity and his attitude towards you, regardless of your attitude to him. And I want you to write this list every day, get on your knees and say thank you. Um, And he said, on top of that, you can put in little things that occur during the day. I've been invited to speak by the Institute of Catholic Culture. The sun is shining, uh, or it is where I am at the moment. Uh, I had a nice cup of coffee with friends in a cafe, just little things. These are the luxuries And so there is the proof that God not only gives you what you need, he gives you more than you need. You lead a life of superabundance. And your task is to actually see the truth of this. Um, When people talk of being real about life in the modern sort of psychology, it normally means you're whining or whinging, selectively picking out what is bad. David said that isn't true. The true life is the good one. Um, And you've got to start living in that and seeing that you're being looked after. Um, And so he was changing my attitude. And again, I found that by actually taking the action, I I eventually started to feel grateful. Um, He then suggested uh, that I read something each day. Now, the general thing here, remember, I'm an atheist. uh, So he couldn't say the Bible or the Psalms or scripture or um, some spiritual reading. So he gave me this thing called... It was on a card called the Just for Today statement, uh, which is in the handout. I include that. You may or may not like that. Um, I fulfill this now by doing the Liturgy of the Hours and saying the Psalms and reading scripture every day, actually. But this was great because it's a sort of generic, non-religious statement. Um, I found out later that it was written in the 30s by, is it Mary Baker Eddy, the Christian scientist, but nevertheless, it was. Re- I was ready to do it, and uh, I remember uh, looking at this. and He said, "Don't feel you have to do everything there; just um, read it." And he said, "In time, you will grow towards it." And it's in the model of what Saint Paul says: "Set your sight on heavenly things," and if you set your sight on it, because we are uh, teleological we go towards what we imagine we want to do, what we see in our minds, you will move towards this. You will grow towards this ideal for living. And, there's, and I started to do this. And uh, one little story that came out of this was it says at one point, I will do something uh, for somebody and they won't know it. If, I, if they know it won't count. I thought, how am I going to do that? I know. I get the, the, uh, the, the tube, the, you know, the subway in London to work every day. And, and the great thing when you're on the tube, when you're commuting, is you want to sit on the seat and get just be able to bury yourself in a book and then just get off where you need to get off. Uh, very often it's packed. And so you're, you're, you're hanging onto this thing in the middle of the roof, holding your book, and then looking for people who look like they're going to get off. And then you sort of sidle up, And when they get up, you, tr- you jump in there. Okay, well, that's what I did. I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is, when I see that somebody's leaving, I'm going to get myself into a position where I could sit down, but I'm going to hesitate and see whether anybody else wants to go first. And this gave me a, an amazing discovery. I found out that actually, that's what most people do, <laughs> and most people wait to see if there's anything more, anyone more deserving. Um, and every now and again. You'll get some selfish so and so, as I know, sort of just diving in there ahead of everybody. And when I indignantly looked at this guy who just jumped in, um, I, I realized that I was looking at myself. <laughs> and so uh, this this had been a sort of a good lesson for me. Um, and through this, he was beginning to break me out of my self centeredness, which was shutting out God, and was the cause of the unhappiness through these little. Uh, lessons. And then finally, I had to. Well, there's two more things. I've just got about enough time, a couple of minutes. One is make a voluntary sacrifice of time to others. I ended up volunteering with um, homeless people. And he said, What you do is you just go and be a friend to them. It's the, the best thing is if you give to people who can't give back to you. If we help our friends and our family, because there are friends and our family in some way it reflects back on us. That's not to say that of course it's a wonderful thing to be to be loving to friends and family but the lesson here is to help those also who uh, to do so without thought of return shall we say. And so he said find something and this will transform you. And he had to tell me how to engage in conversation. You ask open questions. You show an interest in them. You don't tell them about yourself. And an amazing thing happened. I started to do this, and I found first of all that they didn't tell me to get lost or something. They seemed pleased that I was asking them and Then some time later, I realized that when I asked the person how you're doing that i a real change had occurred because i wasn't just doing it because David had told me I was actually interested in the answer i was i something had happened to me so that part of me at least was was genuinely interested in the person. I was dealing with. Up to that point, I'll admit, to a large degree, I was objectifying them. I wanted what David was offering me. I was doing the things. You are helping me to do the things. But despite myself, because I was taking right action, shall we say, I was transformed. And this was the beginning of this supernatural transformation. I was becoming a better lover. Uh, And through this, I could take this out into the world and my other um, relationships and then this is the final one strive to do the right thing uh, we st- try to lead a good and virtuous life now i didn't really know how to do this as catholics you you're way ahead of where i was you at least have a sense of the moral law and even if you're failing to live up to it to a greater or lesser degree as we all are at least we know what we're aiming for i didn't have anything like that i was an atheist so initially, it was David. It was my moral law, if you like. I'd, I'd phone him ragging. and say, I'm thinking of doing this. He said, what? I'd say, well, I, I thought I might do this. I thought I've got to represent this, otherwise he's... And he said, oh, I wouldn't do that. Isn't that dishonest? And I said, well, well, I suppose so. But, you know, everyone does it. It's just bending. He said, no, no, we can't get away with that. We have to do what's right. And I had to take a leap of faith to do this. I was used to operating in a different way. Once I realized that, this, that morality and leading a good life is a roadmap to a happy life, and that if you trust in God, things will work out in the end, even if you make a few sacrifices initially, I was ready to follow it more and more. Ultimately, just to, to go ahead, David said to me, you don't want me running your life. You need to find some sort of external authority, uh, moral authority you can't do what you don't can't do what seems right that's what made you miserable in the first place it's a little better asking me for advice but in the end i'm a flawed person uh, so he encouraged me to start looking uh, for an external moral authority and that began the search for religion and ultimately i became catholic and i'll talk a little bit more about that next week now the other thing i want to do is say That this was powerful in so many ways, and just point out that what was lacking here and in this process, and that I didn't have a sense of until much later when I was a Catholic, and if David had pushed this on me, I would have rejected it, was the need of man, I believe, to worship God. I think even when I became a Catholic five years later, I thought of the ritual as a sort of nice little throwback to sort of early times but not vital. It was about what you did and what you believed and how you treated others. Now, of course, I think that the liturgy is the, that is how we relate to God most directly. But actually, David had primed me for this by encapsulating within this daily routine, even though he didn't tell me this, uh, the essence of uh, prayer, which is the worship of God. There's there's thanksgiving, there's petition and intercession, prayer for others and prayer for myself as it will have a bearing on others. There's praise of God through the the gratitude list and adoration in the sense that I am humbling myself before God by taking the action. And when sometime later I walked into the Brompton Oratory and I've told this story before, but I, I will relate it again Uh, in these talks, and I was so taken with the beauty of the liturgy that I saw. So much of it was the music, the art, and the architecture that I saw and what was going on. But I think a lot of it was that I had been primed uh, to see it without being aware of it, that those senses within me for what is right and good, even in the the action of worship, had been stimulated by, by this stage, several years of practising this daily routine. And I did. I have done it daily, and I still do it. This is a, a core part, even today, of my daily routine of prayer and meditation. Actually, I've added contemplative prayer. And we can talk a little bit about that, which is the more passive form of uh, reflection. And but nevertheless, that's what I do. And so I hope that some of you might be uh, moved to try and give this a try. As I. As I I'll repeat what David said to me. Try it for thirty days, and if you don't like it, it we'll return your misery with interest. I, I would say that you don't have to be, you know, in, in despair for this to work. Um, if life is going quite well and you think it might be, it could be better. I think it would have a, a, a good effect too. Um, that's why I keep doing it. Life is good now. I'm, I'm enjoying life, uh, but I believe it could always be better, and I keep doing it. Um, I think that's enough for this week. We'll we'll stop there, and I'll take questions. Thank you, Professor Clayton. We really appreciate
1: uh, your insights and your guidance tonight. I was thinking of Socrates and his, and his trial when he said, "The unexamined life is not worth living." In so many ways, you were, you know, kind of helping us to uh, to step back and and to consider how our life is going and take maybe a different approach to the workaday world that just kind of keeps us in this cycle of of, of uh, a lack of examination. So look guys, we got a question here from Catherine that says, what resources do you particularly recommend for going deeper in tonight's topic? And I'm not even going to ask Professor Clayton to answer that because number one, you got your your handout for tonight. that's number one, but number two, just before we began the program, we shared the screen with you. We're going to do so again right now because I know Andy's got it all ready to go with the books for David Clayton and uh, his book here, there we go the vision for you is actually a book, not just a talk at the Institute. So you can go on to his website, thewayofbeauty.org slash books. We're going to link this in your uh, email tomorrow. If you want to pick up this book and uh, his other books are also wonderful, the way of beauty and the little oratory. So that's what I would recommend to you tonight. Unless professor Clayton, you wanted to add anything to that.
3: Well, just to say that's, um, Do feel free to ask me questions. And there is a, uh, I mentioned the distilled version, which just has the, it's sort of eight short chapters outlining the process. Um, And uh, if you have questions, as you're going through, email me, get in touch with me. You can do that through my website, thewayofbeauty.org. I like, I love talking to people about this. And so always happy to hear from people
1: also want to give a little plug for uh, Professor Clayton's Pontifex University, where you can get a master's degree online. If you want to go check that out, pontifex.org, pontifex.com. What do you got over there? It's uh, pontifex.university. Dot university. There you go. And we're going to link that in your email tomorrow also. So uh, here's a question. That's, I really like this one because I think it, it kind of challenges us in the kind of modern day, work of day world that we're, we're living in. Any suggestions on how to identify what you really want to do? Some people, including me, are so busy doing what they need to do, that there's little time to think about what we want to do.
3: Okay, so that is that is uh, half the battle. So the, the first thing is that that's why we do those spiritual exercises first, is to Clear the path to God. That's why David wouldn't actually take me through that discernment process at the first, at the beginning, and actually didn't even ask that question, which I gave to you about inheriting money, till some time when I was through the process. But that's why these um, spiritual exercises are there. They clear away the, so much of the self centeredness. So we're open to God's call. And I will cover this in depth. In the third of these talks, uh, so ha- you know, hang on, we're going to get there. But the answer is, you you just do what you think you might enjoy, and you just do a little bit. So do an evening class. Go and I, I'll tell you some stories about people who just phoned up somebody who was doing it and ended up getting a job. You know, without. But um, you just do a little bit, and you try things, and you find that if you like it, if it's what you're meant to do. The more you do it, the more you like doing it. Um, there are certain things that I did. Um, believe it or not, I thought about becoming a professional uh, claw hammer banjo player. And that's a whole other story. But, and there's various reasons why I rejected it. But in the end, I decided that it was a hobby, but it couldn't be a career. Um, because I, there was a limit to how much I enjoyed doing it. Um, and when I just tried the art, when I did it, I enjoyed it. As, as much as I did it, I enjoyed it. And then doors seemed to open. You just, you, I, I met people who took me under their wing. The first evening class, this guy came up to me and said, hey, you, sh- you should use, you know, I'll, I'll tell these stories in the five things. So you just do the best you can, having done these spiritual exercises first. And then you just, and if, a lot of people have a number of things. And, and David just said, well, just prioritize them as best you can. This is not a rod to beat you with. The point about this is to enjoy it, to enjoy life. So uh, start at the top and then keep doing it until you decide it's not what you want to do.
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, uh, just turn this question just slightly. It's very okay. re- close, very related, uh, but I think it kind of approaches it on different aspects. As I believe that you mentioned if you're trying, if what you were trying to accomplish comes easily, then it is God's will for you. If this is correct. If you have a biblical reference, how would you respond to those who have tried several times before attaining success?
3: Do I have a biblical reference? Man, well, I
1: don't know if you need a biblical reference. Okay, but,
3: I, 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 I got it. Uh, there's the biblical scholar That's on the spot there. Um, but I I think, um, remember that the, the, it's not, while we do want to succeed and we do want to get there, it's, it's the, in the trying that we're successful. The, the, it has to be enjoyable as you're doing mm-hmm. it. So again, I would say that what David said is that if you can't enjoy today, this day, we're living in now, even if you get what you want, you're not going to be happy because it won't be enough. You, you are developing the art of living happily regardless of your circumstances. And good things come to happy people and happiness is a choice, is what he said to me. I wasn't sure whether I believed him, but I, I think that now. Uh, i had to be shown how to make that choice um but if 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 you have if you've tried many times and it, and you're despairing um while i say it should come easily it's there is graft but always there is there's enough um in my experience enough uh encouragement from others things happen that make you think i think i'm this is right um and when I painted, I knew that I enjoyed painting, and that encouraged me just to keep on doing it. Uh, and it was... So it's 10 years ago, I finally got the job as artist in residence at Thomas More College of Liberal Arts. Now, should we say that that was at the point that my parents stopped worrying about me? Um, and that was 20 years later, okay? So I, I always had this feeling that I was doing something worthwhile, and, you know, I, I wasn't on the bread line. But I was falling further and further behind my peers. Who, you know, I had a guy; a, the guy I was best man at his wedding. He was CEO of a national bank in the UK that I was at university with, and in his early thirties. And here's me doing evening classes at Chelsea College. Of War. So, when you have a happy life and you have a Christian life, the actual success of it isn't so much the issue, but you'll it, you will get a sense that you it's that there's a there's a forward motion in this. So it, That's what I found. And if you're not getting that at all, it might be time to try the second item on your list.
1: You know, as you are talking, uh, David, I was thinking of our, our pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And it's one thing I always encourage participants. In fact, I demand it of our participants. And that is that you never walk by a door without checking to see if it opens up. Because invariably there's going to be a door that opens, and inside is going to be a monastery. Inside the monastery is going to be a church. Inside the church is going to be an old monk that you just got to talk to, and God prepared you for that moment. And so many tourists, tourists, they go, they tour, you know, through the Holy Land, and they're they're taking pictures of stuff, you know. But I'm I, I, my my hope is that when I get people there that they're gonna they're gonna actually be put the camera down and start opening up doors because invariably a door is going to open. And this has really been true at the institute that we've always been open to the working of the Holy Spirit. When a door opens, it's my policy that we walk through it. We have um, our um, uh, 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 gentleman in here tonight who is chairman of the board for many years here at the institute. It drove him crazy because every time we had a board meeting, I had another idea because doors kept opening. And but those doors opening have led us even here's the here's the proof right now tonight, guys. it's we're in this webinar tonight because because it was a, it was a rainstorm in the middle of uh, the, in, in, in Virginia. It was so bad. They were calling for, you know, tornado type, whatever. and, And we couldn't hold the talk, but we were in the middle of a series. So like at like noon, at like 12 in the afternoon, I started typing in what's a webinar. And by the, by the afternoon it came about and we were in a meeting and all of a sudden, so it was possible for us to reach out beyond Northern Virginia to, to, to make this happen. Doors open. And this question that he asked here is what? But someone who's tried several times before attaining success—that's the whole. That's the point. You gotta you got try be open to the movements of the
3: spirit. Am I right, Professor Clayton? That's right. Yeah. Open so, to these openers. Uh, um, don't I would say don't keep on trying the same thing over and over again. Right. Instead, but try a different way or try a different goal. But um, uh, so at the very least. Aim to be an artist, which I always do, but try lots of different ways. Um, and uh, But if you're doing the same thing over and over again, then it might be time to say that's not working. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, um, Professor Clean, it was a few years ago back that you actually published this book, and I, had, you sent me a copy of it. So it's been a little while since I picked it up. Is the whole story that you just related to us this evening contained in the book? Uh,
3: yes, and, and much more besides. So... The structure of the book is that story and then a very detailed account of the process, which is probably going to be a difficult read. It's best done with somebody who's done it, you know. um, And I wrote this almost as a manual for, for people who are sponsoring others.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work,